Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, Bishop talks about St. Bonaventure, a Franciscan theologian and doctor of the church. Then it's on to the Apostle of the Apostles, St. Mary Magdalene. The Catholic Word of the Week returns with the word exegesis, and then Bishop gives an update on our diocesan seminarians, new hires for the diocese, and what he's currently reading. The show wraps up with Bishop answering questions submitted by listeners on topics like speaking in tongues and prenuptial agreements. Submit your question for a future episode by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good Bishop. Thank you again for meeting with us and sharing with us, inspiring us, maybe challenging us, answering our questions. You're welcome. Good to be back. All the above. Monday, the 15th, was the memorial of St. Bonaventure, and then... The upcoming Monday, the 22nd, is the Feast of St. Mary Magdalene, kind of two big feast days that we're kind of in the middle of here. I kind of was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about these two great saints. Oh, I always love reading about and talking about the lives of the saints. Um, Yeah, you mentioned St. Bonaventure. He's probably one that a lot of people don't know a lot about, other than that he's a Franciscan, 13th century, so not long after St. Francis died. He was Italian. And um, he was a minister general of the Franciscan order. Hmm. I think the seventh minister general. What would that mean? The leader. Okay. Yeah. The superior. But he became ordained a bishop and was actually a cardinal. He is a doctor of the church, you know, one of the great scholar saints. As a matter of fact, we call him the seraphic doctor. The seraphic doctor. And he was a, a theologian, a excellent scholastic theologian. He wrote many books of theology, but also on the spiritual life. He has a famous commentary on the sentences of Peter Lombard. That's an important medieval theological work. Hmm. But I think on the uh, 
uh, in the area of the spiritual life, there's there's a work that he wrote called The Mind's Road to God. And he wrote a commentary on the Gospel of Luke. He wrote a book on religious life called Concerning the Perfection of Life. Uh, he wrote a biography of St. Francis. That's pretty famous. He wrote a work called The Brevi Loquium, which is also great. But without getting into all that, he was a medieval theologian like St. Thomas Aquinas. But whereas Thomas was more uh, using Aristotelian philosophy, Bonaventure was more of the of Plato, you know, and some of the Platonic, more mystical kind of writings than Aquinas. So there's this kind of complementarity, I'd say, between the Franciscan and the Dominican traditions. So there are some people who really prefer Aquinas, the way he looks at, at things, and others who prefer the approach of St. Bonaventure. I'd say the Bonaventure approach deals more with the affections and the heart, you know, they're both great doctors of the church, Aquinas and Bonaventure. Aquinas is certainly more famous, more influential, but Bonaventure too. I mean, Bonaventure is a great theologian, and um, but they're not saints because of their uh, theology. I mean, Bonaventure was uh, a very holy man, uh, truly lived the Franciscan life. By the way, he and Thomas Aquinas both received their uh, theological education at the University of Paris. So they would have known each other. And, you know, as I said, he became a bishop and he was one of the bishops at one of the church councils, the Second Council of Lyon. And at that council, he was really one of the leading reformers. Um, there was an attempt to bring the Eastern Church back into unity with Rome. Uh, so he was important in that discussion, although ultimately it wasn't successful. He also worked hard for the reconciliation of divisions between the mendicant and the secular clergy. In other words, the mendicants would be like the Franciscans and Dominicans, and there was friction between the religious orders, those mendicant orders, and regular diocesan clergy. Mm. So he worked to bring reconciliation there. But it was during that council, and that was taking place in the year 1274, that, that he died unexpectedly. He died, and some say suspiciously, but, but he died during that council uh, on this date, by the way, yesterday, July, or on Monday, July 15th was the date of his death, the year 1274. So, um, yeah, if anyone's interested, he's a good, uh, I think, again, I recommend his writings on the spiritual life. Yeah, when we think about great theologians, we'll often think of, you know, the teachers like the Dominicans, but it's important to realize there are some great Franciscan theologians like sure. Bonaventure. You called him the seraphic. seraphic. Yeah, seraphic because, you know, the seraphim. Yeah. They're angels. So, in a sense, because of his kind of mystical approach to things, kind of a heavenly, kind of angelic writings, I guess. That's just my speculation. That's uh -huh. why he has that title. Interesting. Because then, who, who's the angelic? That's St. Thomas. Yeah. St. Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. Both so both, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Have that, that. And they went to school together. They did. Yep. University of Paris. It's quite the alumni list. <laughs> yeah, really. Could you imagine being in that graduating class, <laughs> right. class of 1257? I only made it to Blessed. <laughs> Failure. 
All right. Well, then also, as we mentioned, coming up on Monday is the Feast of St. Mary Magdalene. Now, this is a recent feast added to the liturgical calendar. Yeah, it used to be a memorial, mm-hmm. but it was given a higher ranking in liturgical you know, rankings of, of, of feasts. So now it is a feast, which means, for example, if you go to Mass that day, you'll pray the Gloria. Where if it's a memorial, you wouldn't. So it's a higher rank. And Pope Francis decided to do that, um, I think, about three years ago. And um, Mary Magdalene, of course, you know, she's called Magdalene because that's where she's from. Town called Magdala. Uh Magdala is a fishing village or was a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's often a confusion about her uh, and it goes really back to St. Gregory the Great. Like when we hear, for example, Mary Magdalene, we'll think, oh, that was the woman who was a prostitute and mm-hmm. changed. And, and uh, there's nothing in the scriptures that said she was a prostitute. Right. You know, or they'll identify her with the penitent woman who, remember, washed the feet of Jesus, anointed the, the feet of Jesus. That woman doesn't doesn't have a name okay. in the Gospels, so this this tradition kind of developed that that was Mary Magdalene, but there's no scriptural evidence for that. And some of them that blame goes to a great saint, Gregory the Great, because I think he well, I think he definitely identified her with another Mary, Mary of Bethany, the sister of uh, Martha and Lazarus. Well, again, there's no evidence that that was that. Well, I don't think that would have been Mary Magdalene anyhow. Mary wasn't from Bethany. She was Mary Magdalene was from Magdala. Uh-huh. So there's these different three women mm-hmm. that were conflated together in the popular image of who Mary Magdalene is. Interesting. So I think now we've gotten away from that. Now, it's interesting in the Orthodox Church or even in the Eastern Catholic Churches, that never happened. They never mixed up these women. Mm -hmm. So as far as we know, I mean, we stick with the Gospels. What do the Gospels tell us about her? Well, St. Luke says, well, she was one of the women disciples who traveled with Jesus. I mean, that's what we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also know from the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark, by the way, mentioned that seven devils were cast out from her. Yeah, so something. Uh, so so maybe, was... maybe that yeah, got the idea that she had been a prostitute or something. But, um, but more importantly, I mean, we should stick with what we know. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a, a close follower of Jesus. And she was there at the crucifixion Mm -hmm. and at the burial of Jesus. And she was the first witness to the empty tomb. Mm -hmm. Remember Easter Sunday morning, we read in Gospel of John, and that's the reading that we have on Easter Sunday morning, how she went to the tomb early in the morning and she saw the stone removed from the tomb and she went back to tell Peter and uh, the other apostles. So... Because of that, she was given the title Apostle to the Apostles because she saw the empty tomb and she brought the message to the others that the tomb was empty. Now, she didn't at that point tell them Jesus is risen from the dead. She didn't know. She said, they've taken the Lord from the tomb. We don't know where they put him. It was only later when, when Jesus appeared to her. You know, remember she was weeping and, and uh, she thought he was the gardener. <laughs> right. And uh, when Jesus said her name, Mary, 
that's when she recognized him and uh, said, Rabboni, or teacher. But then after that, she went and announced to the disciples that she had seen the Lord. So there again, she's the apostle to the apostles. She had seen the Lord. So she's a great saint. And unfortunately, in some popular writings, etc., some uh, have tried to distort her relationship with Jesus. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's all terrible, I think. Uh, let's stick with what what uh, the truth about Mary Magdalene as a disciple of the Lord. There's also stories and legends about her that you find in the apocryphal gospels, you know, those that are not recognized as legitimate or, or uh, not, not inspired writings, but just stories and legends. So, you know, there's one that's called the gospel of Mary Magdalene, the gospel of Mary is called, but it's, it's about Mary Magdalene. So really we shouldn't give credence to those, mm -hmm. uh, those things. What does it say about the resurrected Jesus that one of his closest followers didn't recognize him? Yeah, there was something different about the uh, the risen Lord. Um, yeah. That's always kind of perplexing because there was something that he had to do or say that uh -huh. then they their eyes were opened. For the example, the, the bread right and Emmaus saying her name. Right, right. So there was something different. I mean, we know the body, the risen body of Jesus, is different from a natural body, but we know it's the same body because he shows them the wounds of his passion, of his crucifixion. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's that's one of those mysterious things about the uh, resurre the, the post-resurrection accounts. Yeah. All right, well, coming up, we will talk about the Catholic word of the week, exegesis, and some new hires for the diocese right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, here with our bishop, and every once in a while we do this Catholic Word of the Week. And something people have said that they really like about this show is whenever you walk through Scripture, sometimes they call that exegesis. Right. Where does that word come from? Again, it's Greek, um, <laughs> and it, it means explanation. Uh, huh. So exegesis is a critical ex uh, explanation of texts of Scripture. So it would look at words and their meaning of the actual word or text. Uh, so if you do an exegesis, you're, you're studying, okay, what does this Greek word mean? What were they communicating? So you really get into it, like I do sometimes in this show. Yeah. When we're talking about a scripture passage, I might say, well, the Greek word such and such meant this. This is how the people would have understood it. Mm -hmm. We talked, I think, at one point, maybe a couple of years ago, you know, the Greek word Adelphos or Adelphoi for, for brothers, translated that Jesus had brothers or mm -hmm. brothers and sisters. And I was very clear that, yeah, but if you look at that word in Greek, it referred to close relatives. Uh, so, you know, if one knew the original language and understood through exegesis, you know, well, they're not talking about blood brothers here. Mm -hmm. It can also mean cousins, you know, or, you know, close, close relatives. So that's why exegesis is important for us to truly understand the meaning of the words and to interpret them correctly. Seems also why it's important that we have the teaching authority of the church, because most of us are not going to learn Greek. 
right. to be able to sit down with the scripture and interpret it correctly by ourselves. Right, or Hebrew, for that mm-hmm. matter, for the Old Testament. But Kyle, I think you should study Greek since you're uh, <laughs> on Redeemer Radio. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, I loved I loved studying Greek. It's a great language. And I found it easier than Latin, actually. I mean, it's a different kind of alphabet, but um, different characters. But yeah, I think you could do a online Greek course. So yeah, yeah, it, it it really isn't too bad. Yeah, I don't know if there's is Greek offered in any of our colleges around here. I'm talking I, biblical Greek, which is different than modern oh, Greek. Okay. You know, it, it's very different from modern Greek. It's like the huh. difference between Latin and Italian. Okay. So, but I'm not sure. I'm sure they teach it at. Uh, Notre Dame, but I'm wondering at the University of St. Francis, do they teach Greek? I interviewed Monsignor Heinz, and he said he used to teach it at St. Joe High School, I think. Oh, right. Okay. He was teaching there. So, what is the order of your language learning timeline? Well, started with English, I assume. <laughs> yeah, in high school, I studied German okay. for four years, which I, I really loved. Then I had a year of Spanish in college. Then when I, that was at Mount St. Mary's. Uh-huh. Then when I went to St. Charles to, in Philadelphia to finish college, that's when I had two years of Latin and two years of Greek. And then uh, I was studying them both at the same time. Then when I went to Rome, of course, I had to learn Italian. Uh-huh. And then also I continued studying Latin for several years in Rome. I probably studied Latin maybe four years in Rome. But then um, one summer I went to Spain and continued studying Spanish. So, yeah, studying languages was always enjoyable. I, that's just such a good, you know, it opens up so much, you know, when especially you can converse with people in their native tongue, but also for the for purposes of study, learning Latin and Greek. Mm-hmm. Um, those are two languages that our seminarians study in seminary. Latin, of course, being the universal language of the church. If you're going to do serious research, you should know Latin. If you're going to study canon law, you definitely know Latin, need to know Latin. Uh, Greek is very important for scripture. But I never got to, for the New Testament, uh, I never got to study Hebrew, though. So I, I don't know Hebrew at all. But those who are going to do more advanced studies in scripture have to learn Hebrew. Because, of course, that's the original language of the Old Testament. So, only six languages then. Well, and various levels. I mean, various levels. Do you get confused sometimes? Like you're- sometimes, but yeah, the ones that I get confused would be sometimes is Spanish and Italian. Right. Yeah. I mean, you don't. Yeah, you don't. I don't confuse German with those, or or. Uh, <laughs> I don't use German very often. No, no, I've lost most of it. I I took three years in high school. Yeah, I don't remember it. I don't know if it's in my brain somewhere, but (laughs) yeah, I couldn't couldn't converse in German anymore. Well, another thing that's happened around the diocese here is a couple new big hires, including the superintendent of Catholic schools and the secretary for communications. Can you share a little bit about that? Oh, I'm so happy with these two new hires, you know. you know, as far as superintendent of Catholic schools, Marsha Jordan, who served us for uh, served our as superintendent of schools for several years, but served the mission of Catholic education for many years in our diocese. You know, I miss her; she was wonderful, and so we needed to search for a new superintendent. And um, you know, I was just hoping we'd get the right person. And it, I did not know Joe Brett 
Knocker before. He had been a principal at Marion High School, and then he, when he went on, he became a principal in other schools and also superintendent for the Diocese of Columbus in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we were able to hire him, what a blessing, you know. So he's just starting, but I, I'm very confident that he'll do a great job. And then the other important new hire is Jennifer Simerman, who uh, also comes with a very very impressive background and has a, a great personality and I think and, and really good ideas mm-hmm. for communications uh, for the diocese. So I'm, I'm really happy to have welcomed her. I'm grateful Stephanie Patka had served as a secretary of communications for the diocese and, and uh, she's uh, pursuing another uh, career. But these were two really important hires for, for us. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we've done well with both. In both positions impact a lot of people. So. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. When you think of Catholic schools, thousands. Communications, thousands. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, also, I was kind of hoping as we are slowly approaching back to school, maybe you could give us a little update on our seminarians. I understand there's two that are going to be going over to Rome to join Mark Hellinger and, well, Father Spencer St. Louis will be over there too. And yeah, then, the two new ones that are going over there, they'll begin theology. They've already been with us for two years as mm-hmm. pre-theologians at Mount St. Mary's. One of them is is Sam Anderson from St. Vincent's Parish in Fort Wayne. Mm-hmm. And the other is Zane Langenbrunner from St. Bevo's in Mishawaka. Two fine seminarians, uh, fine young men. I just admitted them both to the to candidacy, which means it's one of the steps to becoming a priest where they become official candidates for the Sacrament of Holy Orders. So by the end of, I think it's the end of July, they're heading over there because they have to do some Italian studies Mm -hmm. before the classes begin in October. So we'll have four in Rome. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Father Spencer doing his final year to uh, obtain the, the license in sacred theology. He has to go back for one more year. We have Mark Hellinger, who's been there this past year, and I think he'll be glad to have uh, two more brother seminarians from the diocese joining him there. You know, the odd limit of visit for the bishops of the United States to Rome to to meet with the Pope will be this this coming December, November, December, and for our region seven, which includes the states of Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. We're scheduled to be there in, uh, in December, and to, uh, we'll be meeting with Pope Francis on December 12th. So while I'm over there, I'm hoping I'll get to, well, I will. I'll be staying at the North American College, so I'll see our men. Yeah. But hopefully, we'll be able to take them out for dinner some night. Yeah. Do yeah. you know where you'll take them? Yeah, I have favorite. my favorites. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll talk to them about that. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be better. Uh, yeah, you know, I went over Father Francis Trukuma, who's the pastor at... Uh, St. John Bosco in Churubusco uh-huh. and Immaculate Conception in Eggie. When he was doing his some canon law studies in Rome, I went over to t- and I uh, invited him. I'd take him out to dinner, but he could choose the restaurant. He chose a Chinese restaurant. I said, there's no way. I didn't come to Rome to go to a Chinese restaurant. I love Italian food, so yeah. I always joke... He, he just loves Chinese food. I yeah. said, how can you go to Rome and be eating Chinese food <laughs> yeah. when we have the great Italian cuisine? So I always tease him about that. So I won't be going to a Chinese restaurant with yeah. him. What about seminary in general? Is the, 
the class for 2019, 2020, is that finalized or is there still a chance that people might be added kind of last I minute? Think, I think it's almost finalized. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Usually the last step in their application process is when they, uh, when I meet with them and interview them. Before that, all the others, you know, a lot of work is done by Father Andrew uh-huh. Buzinski as vocation director. Interviews, letters of recommendations, psychological evaluations, there's a lot. So I get the final recommendation. So uh, I think we're probably, I, th- I think I have two more to interview. Yeah, okay. two more to interview, but definitely by the end of July because they start mid-August. You know, we've gotten uh, a few new applicants. I wish I would have kept track. It might be four or five new seminarians this okay. year. So we're, we're holding our own. We're probably going to have 25 seminarians next year. All right. And then also, we recently took as a staff, we did a retreat. And as part of this retreat, we evaluated our personality profiles, I guess you call it. And there, this particular test is called the DISC, D-I-S-C. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No. But it, it was helpful, I think, for us to learn how to communicate with each other, with different personalities, how to accept and, and recognize strengths of different personalities as well. So curious if you know much about your personality type, if you have <laughs> taken one of these like Myers-Briggs or any of these. Yeah, tests. but that was many years ago. The only personality test I think I ever took was Myers-Briggs. Uh-huh. Briggs. And you know what? I don't remember what the results were. Yeah. I, I probably have it in a file somewhere, but I don't remember. But that's the only one. But I didn't know about this disc. So what, what did it come up for you? What kind of personality profile yeah. do you have, Kyle? I think I, it was like a six. The one we did was like 16 questions. Okay. Choice. You know, what are your preferences on these things? And I came out with a C. And I, I get like you, I, I kind of forget what that meant. Uh, I think it was controller, which maybe sounds a little bit <laughs> more dramatic than it actually is. Uh, but yeah, it was interesting to kind of see what each person was. Does it say but, whether you're an introvert or extrovert? I th- well, I think that one said I was an introvert. Yeah. I, mean, I know I'm an introvert. Extrovert. Yeah. I know I'm an introvert. Yeah. Even though I'm with people so much. Yeah. And that, but you know what that means is that it takes more energy. Right. It takes more out of you. And I see that like, you know, I mean, I love being, I mean, with be- people, but it does take my energy. I, yeah. You know, so I'm an introvert. So we both are. Yeah. Interesting. What else did you find out? We did this thing where we we're supposed to try to identify people were acting in these different. I'm horrible at it, figuring out these personalities, and even since then, there's different people who are like, oh, well, he's definitely uh, an S, or this guy's definitely an I, or something. Yeah, and I, I can't. I, I don't know. <laughs> I enjoy learning about it, like, oh, this is kind of helpful, but I, I'm not very good at yeah. recognizing. I would traits. probably be the same. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I, yeah. But, All right. Yeah, well, good. one more thing before we take a break and. What are you currently reading or what might you recommend? Yeah, you know, uh, I often will have more than one book that I'm reading at a, at a time. But the two, so actually right now I'm reading two. I'm all, Remember I mentioned in the last episode about the biography of Father Matteo Ricci, the, oh, yeah. the missionary to China? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm like, I have like maybe 20 more pages to read. Uh-huh. It's a pretty thick biography and pretty heavy. So I'm almost done that. And it really has been fascinating, although not easy reading. Hmm. There's a lot of names, a lot of, you know, it, it, anyhow, that's, that's one. I've enjoyed it. The other I've been reading is the, the relatively new biography of Father Ted Hesburgh uh, mm-hmm. from Notre Dame. 
That's written by Father Bill Miss Campbell, who's a professor of history at Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. I'm probably midway through the biography of Father Hesburgh, which I'm finding very, very interesting, learning a lot about him that I didn't know. Yeah. You know, I mean, I knew him personally, you know, but it was in his last, you know, years of life that I met him and got to know him. But, but so I'm learning a lot about his early life and, and, uh, you know, I did not obviously didn't know him when he was president of Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's been really interesting. I'm anxious to finish that. I'm, I'm anxious to continue reading it. I was reading it well, and then I got sidetracked with the Chinese trip mm-hmm. and was then switched to Father Matteo Ricci's yeah. book. So now I'm when I finish that, I'll go back to the Father Hesburgh biography. So Father Miss Campbell's a very good writer, so it's it's um, it's enjoyable reading. What's maybe the most inspirational or what's a takeaway that for for me for listeners uh about father hesburg that that you find inspirational yeah i mean there's different i mean there's various different aspects to look at as a you know father hesburg as a priest as a president of the university you know and some of the decisions that he made and of course people disagree you know some people disagree on some of the uh effects of his leadership but i think one thing everyone would agree on is that he was a uh, a devoted priest. Hmm. You know, that comes out very clearly in the biography. He was totally committed to celebration of daily mass. I think uh, I read that he he there's not a day went by that he didn't celebrate mass. Wow. So if he, he was, was traveling <laughs> and he was a busy guy traveling all over the world, I yeah, I found the whole thing fascinating. I mean, very influential even beyond Notre Dame, influential in the higher education community. I mean, he was, he really wanted to raise the standards at Notre Dame and Catholic education in general. He wanted excellence. Um, the, the controversy or the disagreement comes in about how that affects, how that affected Catholic identity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the Land O'Lakes Agreement, which separated the university juridically from uh, from the church, from the Congregation of Holy Cross specifically. Mm-hmm. So there are things like that we could would take another show to talk about those issues. But I mean, he had a great influence. Uh, you know, we, we know he had uh, relationships with uh, Pope Paul VI. Mm-hmm. He had relationships, now, now a saint. Yeah. He uh, had relationship with, with a few of the U.S. presidents. He served on the Civil Rights Commission, you know, mm-hmm. um, and other leadership positions in society he was on the board of trustees of harvard university i mean there's just a lot a lot of accomplishments yeah. um there was also a documentary i didn't get to see it a recent documentary mm-hmm. about his life that i think might have been showing in a couple theaters i certainly in south bend yeah 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 i interviewed the director of that oh. and it, was, it looked fascinating i haven't gotten to see it but yeah. i saw a lot of the previews and stuff yeah good but anyhow, I recommend the biography because, as I said, Father Miss Campbell, I think, is a really good writer and and interviewed Father Hesburgh before he died mm-hmm. and got a lot of information and did a lot of good historical research. Yeah, it's it's a very good read. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to redeemerradio.com slash askbishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260 436 95 98 and coming up we have your questions like are the gifts of the holy spirit distributed evenly interesting questions about speaking in tongues and more on truth and charity with bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by notre dame federal credit union
Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman asking questions that you've submitted for him to answer. Our first question is, when one receives the gifts from the Holy Spirit, are all the gifts received all at once in full? For example, can someone be strong in understanding and piety, but weak in counsel and fortitude? Good question. One at uh, baptism and the and at confirmation receives the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we traditionally identify seven, you know, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, fortitude, piety, fear of the Lord, counsel. I forgot counsel. But to have these gifts in one soul, we receive all these gifts. However, we have to open our hearts to the gifts, and we have to continue to pray for them. So, depending on the openness we have in our hearts, we can be stronger in one or another. I mean, for example, people can really be known for their wisdom, that they've really opened themselves to that gift and can be very strong in that, but perhaps have not opened themselves so much to the gift of piety. So I think there can be gradations, I would say, but not according to what God gives, but according to how we receive them. Okay. Well, a somewhat related question. Regarding the gift of tongues, the gospel tells us the apostles spoke and everybody heard them in their native tongue. Today, many claim to have the gift, yet nobody can understand what they're saying. On the other hand, I've heard that suddenly knowing a language you have never studied is a sign of demonic possession. So, how do we reconcile this? Interesting questions. I think some distinctions need to be made. Okay. The caller talked about the gospel tells us that the apostles spoke and everybody heard them in their native tongue. Now, that's really not the gospel. That's the Acts of the Apostles. Okay. And it's the account of Pentecost. And at Pentecost, after receiving the Holy Spirit, the disciples were able to go out and to, to speak and to preach, and, and people understood what they were saying in their own languages because there were people there from different countries who spoke different languages. So it caused some bewilderment, you know? They were how is it that we understand, you know? So that was a special gift. So that's speaking in tongues at Pentecost. Mm -hmm. But that's different than when we read the letters of St. Paul, especially his first letter to the Corinthians, where he writes a good bit about speaking in tongues. That's a totally different kind of gift. Mm -hmm. It's a, a charism for prayer and praise, but it's unintelligible. I think one way uh, to, to perhaps understand what we mean when we speak of the gift of tongues, you know, not that what happened at Pentecost, but what St. Paul writes about as one of the charisms of the Holy Spirit, it is a phenomenon, I guess you say, or uh, caused by the Holy Spirit in which while praying, various sounds come from one's mouth uh, from one's tongue it's kind of a if you've ever been at a charismatic meeting or charismatic prayer where you hear people who are praying in a way that you don't it's unintelligible mm -hmm. and that's what we speak of as 
the gift of tongues according to St. Paul. So it's really a, a nonverbal in the sense that there's not um, understandable words, but a gift by which one is speaking sounds that is part of their prayer. It's kind of non-conceptual, I guess you could say. That might be one way of explaining praying in tongues. But doesn't St. Paul also talk about people that interpret those tongues? That's right, because there can be, a, and that's really an additional gift, I think, uh, an ad- additional charism is, is the interpretation. But that doesn't mean a literal interpretation of a language, okay? In other words, it doesn't mean that they're speaking different languages. When you read that text, which would really be more like what happened at Pentecost, mm-hmm. you know, because there they actually heard languages. But I think what is being interpreted is, well, what is the inspiration that's coming from the Holy Spirit as one is is praying? So I think that's what they mean by the interpretation of tongues. It's not a translation, in other words. Mm-hmm. We're talking about preconceptual prayer, a prayer of the spirit, a prayer of the of the heart rather than a prayer of the mind. So when you talk about interpretation, that's a subsequent gift. So it's not a a a language translation. Okay. Okay. It's a little complicated. You might want to have someone who knows more about this than I do, but that's the best way that that I can understand it. You know, Saint Paul prefers the gift of prophecy because there it's intelligible. He, he kind of says that that's a, a higher gift, so to speak, than, than the gift of tongues. But of course, the highest gifts are the theological gifts of faith, hope, and charity. Well, and both of those examples of speaking in tongues would be completely different than the example given in the question of right. somebody knowing a language that they never studied being a sign of demonic possession. Yeah, exactly. Um, I've seen that when I've read about exorcisms, et cetera, that sometimes a demon might speak in another language, right? That, that would be different, yeah. Yeah, that wouldn't be the only sign, I suppose, too, that somebody was possessed. Oh, there'd have to be other, yeah. Well, you can ask your questions by going to redeemerradio.com slash askbishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have questions about extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion and prenuptial agreements and more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services that save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman asking the questions that you have submitted. One of our listeners said, I am a minister of the Holy Eucharist. If I know someone who comes to me to receive, who is not in full communion with the teachings of the church and expects and insists on receiving the Eucharist because of their, say, elevated standing in the community, I consciously cannot give them communion, 
but only a blessing, correct? Thank you for your response. God bless. Interesting question. Uh, you know, when people come up to us for Holy Communion, we really can't judge them and the state of their soul or their state of communion. I mean, we presume it. We can't. I mean, I, I, I give out Holy Communion. The only the only prohibition that uh, canon law has is, is if someone is um, publicly, manifestly persisting in in uh, grave sin. Mm -hmm. So... You know, I don't know if someone who comes up is not in communion with certain teachings of the church or not. How would I know that? Or how would I know that they hadn't been to confession the day before mm -hmm. and been absolved of, of, of a particular sin? So, one, yeah, it's really not the role of the minister to be making those judgments of those coming up for communion, unless it's someone that has been excommunicated or something like that where you're, you know we're not allowed to give communion to them okay yeah what about non-catholics if we know well, that would be not Catholic? yeah you know i i will that will happen sometimes mm -hmm. usually a non-catholic come up with their with arms crossed mm -hmm. and then you just can say a word of blessing to them but if you know someone is not catholic and they don't do that and they maybe want to receive communion when when that happens i will still just give a blessing okay or i'll say um, I might whisper to them, I'll give you a blessing since you're not Catholic mm -hmm. or something like that, or try to talk to them then afterwards. I yeah. don't want them to be offended. I don't want to offend them or hurt them. So I, you know, you have to be very charitable in that situation. All right. Somewhat related. Someone asked, should extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion be used as an exception rather than the norm? At what point do they become necessary? Well, if you have Holy Communion distributed under both forms, so if you're distributing the precious blood, then you have to have extraordinary ministers, mm -hmm. unless you have a lot of priests in your parish or deacons that can distribute the body and blood of Christ, both. Mm -hmm. That's why it's pretty normal to have extraordinary ministers, because it's very normal and customary for us to distribute communion under both forms. If you are not having communion under both forms, then it depends on the number of people. Okay. So if you have a large congregation, I mean, some of our parishes, you'd be there for a half hour if it was just the priest mm -hmm. or priest distributing Holy Communion. So that would be a reason why you can have extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. It's a very small parish that you only have 100 people or less at Mass. You don't need to for the distribution of the body and blood of Christ someone who's not ordained. Okay. So that's the pastor kind of looks at that and says, okay, yeah, we need, maybe you have extraordinary ministers at certain masses mm -hmm. and not at others, depending on what the number of communicants. But really when it comes to distribution, if you're distributing the precious blood, I think almost every parish needs to have extraordinary ministers if you only have one priest. Okay. Our next question comes from our Rekindle the Fire Men's Conference. Somebody asked, is it okay for our daughters to be altar servers? Yes. As a matter of fact, the church, I forget what year, several years ago, allowed girls to, to be altar servers. So, you know, it's up to the bishop in each diocese, but, you know, we certainly allow uh, female altar servers here in our diocese. I, I think they're allowed in every U.S. diocese and probably most dioceses of the world at this point. So, mm -hmm. so yes, it is allowed. I've seen some churches will have the boys dressed differently than the girls. Is there any reasoning 
Yeah, I think that's also up to them. I mean, I think some feel that the uh, attire, and I think that's correct, the, the attire for a female ultra server, a little different than the traditional black or red cassock with surplus that a boy would wear. Okay. Uh, but I don't know of any norms on that. Okay. Finally, a listener asked, can Catholics have a prenuptial agreement going into marriage? No, the answer to that is no, because a prenuptial agreement means that a person is open to the possibility of divorce. Mm -hmm. And one needs to enter and say their vows that with the intention that this be permanent and forever, not with the idea, well, maybe it won't work out. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode. Can we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Be sure to listen to next week's episode of Truth and Charity to hear more about St. James the Apostle, since we will soon celebrate his feast day. Then, Natural Family Planning Week, the process for anointing new altars, and listener-submitted questions. Submit yours by going to RedeemerRadio.com askbishop or download the free Redeemer Radio app and select Ask Your Questions. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.